0: All right. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on the GenesisChurch.tv podcast with Scott Hunter. I'm Scott Hunter, your host. And today we are just going to share some time with you by visiting with someone that attends here at Genesis that has planted roots. Um, Her name is Heather George, and she has such a great story of faith, crisis of faith, and just seeing how God's hand has been upon her life and her family's life. So this is Heather. Heather, thank you so much for coming in today. We're so glad that you're a part of this.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: Tell a little bit of the experience of when you came to Genesis, what proceeded to happen afterwards, like immediately. it's Your story blows my mind.
1: Actually, the week after we started attending Genesis for the first time is when we went to... The doctor's appointment where they told us that there could possibly be something wrong with Abigail's heart and that is when they told us three weeks later that we need to come back for a follow-up visit we never stopped coming to Genesis and actually the Sunday before we had our appointment we sent in a prayer request um, and then on that Tuesday is when everything happened
0: <laughs> so after you came here and then you get this alert from the doctors that you've got to go and show up. What happened when you when you showed up to the appointment? What did they tell you? And, and by the way, how far along are you in your pregnancy at this point?
1: I was 33 weeks pregnant, and oh, wow. they told us that her heart was too big, that it was bigger than it should be. Um, but the most important thing was that the blood flow in her umbilical cord wasn't the way they would have liked to see it. Um, so they were worried that she wasn't getting the blood flow or the nutrition that she needed which is why we ended up admitted to tmh and transferred over to shans
0: so how long did you stay at shans like from there on out like what was what were the things that followed
1: so i was admitted to tmh and actually if i can back up a little bit because the story here is crazy um so I was in the middle of teaching summer camp that I was solely in charge of. and
0: Heather is a dance teacher, by the way, Thank at you. <laughs> Sharon Davis, and she's fantastic. My kids <laughs> took classes with her. All right, go for it.
1: Um, but so I'm not the most um, organized person, and for some reason the week before I decided I'd have everything already cut and ready for the crafts and everything, like all the directions for every little thing written down. I mean, anybody could have taken over without missing a beat. Um, and that's basically what happened so we went into the doctor's appointment at 8 in the morning and they told us we had to be admitted because they really thought that Abigail would need to be delivered then and um, so I called my boss and she said just don't worry about anything I've got it covered and so it was super easy for them to take over and that's where I find I like to call them God moments in mm-hmm. Abigail's story and that's our first little God moment um, that I saw where I have no reason as to why I would be that organized, but I was. Um, But we were admitted and sat in labor and delivery in a bed for the longest time before they finally set up transport to Shans. And I rode two hours in the back of an ambulance on one of those (laughs) ambulance beds. Yeah, and I was 33 weeks pregnant, so my (laughs) tailbone—I could not get comfortable. But we got to Shans, and things happened so incredibly slowly. I always thought it was gonna be like this big ordeal, but it was so slow. Um, They admitted me through their labor and delivery. Cardiology, after three days, came by, and that's when they told us her diagnosis, they told us her prognosis, and then we started planning with every single doctor (laughs) that there possibly could be. The high-risk OBs, the the cardiologist, and the palliative care team, so their job was to provide comfort in whatever Abigail's life would have been
0: so tell me about her diagnosis what did they say what was going to happen for Abigail as she was born what were you supposed to expect and Jonathan supposed to expect this has got to be traumatizing mm-hmm. to say the least Yeah. and uh, so just talk to me a little bit about that
1: so her heart diagnosis is called Epstein's anomaly okay. and heart defects already make up one percent of live births, but her defect specifically makes up less than that 1%. So I think the statistics are like point, I don't know, 0.5% of all heart defects have Epstein's anomaly. And Abigail's case was classified as severe. So basically what happened as she was growing was her tricuspid valve, which is on the right side of the heart, was displaced into the right ventricle causing her right atrium to be big and then her to really have no right ventricle. Um, So what that does is, since the tricuspid valve, it's either, so. sorry, in her situation, the tricuspid valve was displaced, but also two of the leaflets, because there's three leaflets, two of Mm -hmm. them were stuck against the wall of the heart. And so she just had one that they said it was a sail-like valve. So it just just fluttered. mm -hmm. So it didn't hold the blood back. So she had severe leakage in her tricuspid valve. And because of the fact that her right ventricle was so small, it wasn't strong enough to push the blood up through her pulmonary valve. So she had what they called uh, pulmonary atresia, which means that the valve wasn't opening. So her blood was going back into her right atrium, back into the ventricle, and just, it's just swirling around. Just like a around. cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's that's called circular. So it's not shunzy. pushing
0: out to the rest of her body.
1: Right. So in utero, it's okay because they have a an extra little artery. It's called the PDA's. I don't know the technical term. <laughs> That's yeah. the, the shorthand. But um, anyway, so when they're in the womb, they don't need their lungs. So this artery catches the blood and sends it throughout their body. So she's able to, she was still able to circulate blood through her whole body. So she okay. was growing and fine in that sense. Um, but one thing that happens with the blood going backwards into the right atrium is the right atrium got big and mm. ballooned up. And that caused her heart to be considered wall-to-wall, which meant it took up her entire chest cavity. Oh, my gosh. And so they did not expect when she was born for her lungs to even be able to expand. She also had two holes in her heart at the top of her heart and at the bottom of her heart. Um, They're called atrial septal defects and then ventricular um, septal defects. So they also, right before she was born, discovered she had an arrhythmia, and that is what ultimately made them decide that she would not be viable. So they told us that they would not offer life support for her. They wouldn't offer transplant. They wouldn't offer surgery. The only thing they would do is intubate her and maybe resuscitate her. But the doctor explained all that would do is just prolong her life and confirm her diagnosis. Um, So we worked with palliative care to come up with a plan. And one of the things that I still remember is our one of our end of life request was that she would be able to go outside so that she could see the sunlight and feel the warmth of the sun
0: um when this hits you and you hear all of this like what what's your initial response like what's jonathan's initial response like is it is it devastation is it um does like faith kick in and you're like i I refuse to believe what the doctors tell me i've had a kid that when you get a diagnosis that's crazy and severe and it completely affects their life and every day is life or death, you have this moment where you have to decide what what you're going to believe and who you're going to believe.
1: Right. So, actually, Jonathan wasn't there when we got the diagnosis. It was me and oh. my mom. He had come back to Tallahassee to get some things because we didn't anticipate being in chance for so long. Sure. So, because the cardiologist hadn't come by in so long we wanted her right then and there to tell us what was happening and so he wasn't there and I just remember having to put on this brave face and when I talked to him on the phone I explained the cardiologist had come by he said what'd she say I said I'm not going to tell you because you're driving um I said it's not great but we'll talk about it when you get here so anyway (laughs) I remember him walking through the door and I just broke down um but I don't. I can't honestly say that I fully remember how it felt that initial um, time being told because I think it kind of blocked it a little bit. Uh, but I do yeah. know that through everything, for some reason, I was able to find hope. Um, now, at the time, Jonathan, I knew we wanted to raise our children in a church, but we were still trying to find exactly how our faith felt. Um, We'd both grown up in Christian families, and I'm not going to speak for Jonathan, um, but I grew up going to church and doing all the things that you're supposed to do, but I just never felt that kind of relationship with God that I now have. (laughs) But that's where all of that started, right here in this journey, where I remember messaging you and telling you it was happening, and you sent a couple of Bible verses, and I think one of them was Hebrews 11, um, one, and that is like my Bible verse now, (laughs) the one I live by. Um,
0: what is it that happened with, you know, your faith from this point forward? Is it something where it is like, what was your response? Like, how did you, how did you get past hearing the news Mm -hmm. and realizing that you have to fight for her?
1: So I remember after telling Jonathan, we forced ourselves to go down to the cafeteria to eat, but neither of us ended up eating anything. We were just so numb; sure. we felt nothing. Um, but we had each other, and I mean, I I don't know. That first night was was rough. Well, um, and then can we imagine. were talking. We were talking about. Um, I mean, we had to start planning what we wanted for Abiel's life. We knew the next day that we'd be talking to the palliative doctors about what we wanted and getting plans from everybody else. But I don't know. It wasn't until we got home and we got back to church that things started working. I started praying differently where I was like, listen, I have nothing right now. And I need you to do everything. Um, And you were preaching about the prayer circle. In that moment. And I was like, okay. And I drew my little prayer circle (laughs) and I knelt down and I, I mean, I was bawling. But after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I've never felt so much peace in my life. And from then on, I was like, I know what the doctors are telling me. I know I have a lot of family members telling me that I shouldn't be so hopeful. But I didn't want to listen to them because I'm like, there's no, I mean, I'm being, in my heart, I felt like it would be okay. I didn't know how. And even if we lost her, I knew that it would be okay. Um, but yeah.
0: <laughs> wow, and that's that's so powerful. You move from growing up in religion and, and it turned into a, a relationship. And that's so, I don't think people grasp that. I think people do go to church. I think people know about God. I think people love God. I don't think they know him. Until you have like a moment where you have to trust them. And my goodness, did you have to trust them? So tell us then what happens when it comes time for Abigail's birth. And then what did you experience like right afterwards? You know, what did the doctors say? What did the doctors think?
1: We went to Shan's ready to deliver. I, at that point, we didn't really know what would happen. Um, But I had a follow-up cardiology visit to determine what they would do. And at that visit, that's the one where they told us she had developed her arrhythmia, and that's when they told us she wouldn't survive more than 24 hours. They gave us um, 24 hours to two weeks, but ultimately they expected her to be basically born dying. Um, So when we were told that, at 37 weeks, I also had... My OB visit over there and they getting you prepared for induction back in COVID times, you had to be tested for COVID. And turned out I was positive for COVID, which meant they didn't. Well, we had some options. They could induce me, and then they would immediately separate Abigail from us when she was born and take her to the NICU.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yes. And she would be in isolation in NICU, which meant we wouldn't be able to visit her so (laughs) that wasn't an option for me so the other option was that we would wait and i was a-okay with that and that's again where i see god working because if it wasn't for that covid diagnosis i think that i mean we would have gone ahead with it and she would have been full term but early full term Mm -hmm. um which in her case we wanted her lungs to be as strong as possible because of their expectation of her lungs not working um so we waited it out and during that time is when i reached out to the two doctors that specialized in epstein's anomaly and they both told us the prognosis is poor but they've seen babies just like her be okay and to give her hope um give her a chance and so that's what we did we knew that our surgeons didn't want to do anything, and it was too late for us to travel because it would either be going to Pittsburgh or going to Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. Um. And I was 30, I think it was 39 weeks at this point. Oh, wow. So I had decided we wanted Abigail to come naturally because if she wasn't going to survive, we didn't want to take... We wanted God to be in full control, basically. So we yeah. didn't want to intervene. We wanted God to tell us when it was time. And... I think it worked out. I don't think we necessarily waited (laughs) until I went into labor because um, I was still followed every few days and the water um, was starting to lower. So they told us that she was running out of room, running out of water, we needed to go ahead and induce and I was okay with that at that point because I also decided if it wasn't medically necessary, I wasn't going to induce. Um, Hmm. So we started the induction process. We were aware that if anything happened in labor and I needed an emergency C-section, if I didn't already have an epidural place, then they would have to give me general, general anesthesia and Jonathan wouldn't be in the room when she was born. So before they even started the induction, I told them I want epidural right away. And they were fine with that. So we started that. And overnight, I labored with the epidural and between um my blood pressure wasn't doing well i my blood pressure would drop know oh they medically intervened somehow to help my blood pressure but anytime they helped me it would hurt abigail so they'd have oh, to wow. then lay me down flip me on my side and put oxygen on me to help abigail because her heart was in distress and it was back and forth for the longest time they did ekgs on me to make sure my heart was doing okay um one of the things that can happen in a situation like Abigail's, you can have something called mirror syndrome. So the mom's body can start to decline the way the baby's body does.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So I don't,
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's so overwhelming. Like I don't like I, when I hear this, I just am in awe one of your strength. And also I know you call them God moments, but I just see the hand of God, like through every moment with you. And I just, this is just an unbelievable story. So continue. What, what, what happens then? when it's time to give birth. I know that they said they gave her 24 hours. How did did that pan out? Because our listeners don't know your whole story like I know your story.
1: By 7 in the morning, they told us it was time for a C-section, which I never wanted. But overnight, I I almost asked them to go ahead and just do a C-section. Now, they wanted us to induce on a weekday so that everybody was in the hospital, but Abigail being Abigail, this all happened on a Saturday morning. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) We, I mean, 7 a.m., they told us we were having a C-section, and by 9, she was born. So it wasn't insanely fast, like you would imagine an emergency C-section, but she was considered urgent. They took her out, and I heard the teeniest little cry. And I still can hear that sound in my head, but also they told us she wouldn't be breathing. And the fact that I heard her crying, I was like, okay. I didn't cry when Audrey was born. I cried when Abigail was born. It was like this overwhelming, oh my goodness. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said I didn't cry when Audrey was born. <laughs> Audrey's <it>. beautiful. Um, <laughs> but, um, but
0: when you're not expecting lungs to work. Right, right. That's, that's amazing.
1: Wellness, I think that is the reassurance you of the know Lord. me too, I don't cry over a lot of things and I don't wear my emotions on my sleeve. Um, so <laughs> the fact that I cried in front of all those people in the operating room was something... They took her away and I expected to hear like them talking about intubating her and resuscitating her. I never heard any of that. They asked Jonathan if he wanted to cut the umbilical cord and I was like, oh wow, okay. So they, as planned, took her to the NICU and once they got her settled, Jonathan was able to join. Um, And our wonderful nurse, she took pictures of when they were getting her situated and then, well, like in the operating room and as they were wheeling her out, and if I, if you zoom in on her oxygen sats her oxygen sats were in the 60s where mm. a healthy person would oxygenate at 95 plus mm. um, so she never needed to be intubated they did give her um, cpap which forces the air into your lungs mm-hmm, and nitric oxide to open up the lungs okay so those things they did in the very early hours early minutes of her life is ultimately i think what helped her get so strong Mm -hmm. um so i was sitting in the recovery room waiting for them to take me to the room where i would be as long as i was admitted and jonathan facetimed me and showed me abigail and i was like okay (laughs) she looked good she had all the lines and they told us she would have in her body she had a feeding tube and she had her little tiny little cannulas in her nose, and she looked good. She looked like a sweet little baby.
0: Um, yeah. (laughs) That's wild. So then, progress forward. So now, she's born, she's breathing. What, what did the doctor say? What are the chances of her recovering and making it through this? Um, did they give you hope at this point? And what was she going to face from this moment forward? Like, I know that there has to be things to correct all these heart defects. Like, so what was their game plan? And at the littlest age of her birth or days in, when did the first thing start happening?
1: So the cardiologist who diagnosed her and told us there was no hope actually wasn't in the hospital when she was born. And I think that, I don't want to talk bad about that doctor because she is an amazing doctor and she laid it out for us as it was expected to be um i do wish she had offered more hope but that's a different story um so the cardiologist who visited abigail came down to talk to me she said she looks better than they expected Hmm. they still don't expect her to live long but they don't know And then she started talking about surgery, surgical options, which this is the first time anybody had talked about surgical options for us. Um, And I mean, I was, she was hours old at that point and I was still in the recovery room. And so that started giving me some more hope. And so once I was put on the floor in my unit, I remember begging for somebody to get me a wheelchair because I just had a C-section so I could get up because at this point, Abigail had been transferred up to the cardiac ICU. And you still haven't
0: held her or seen her?
1: I haven't held her, haven't seen her. Jonathan, I believe, had held her at that point because I want to say he sent me a picture of him holding her, which was amazing that she was able to be held because a lot of the times parents can go days, weeks, months with their heart babies and don't get to hold them so anyway i think it was 12 hours later it was so late at night i they finally my nurse tracked down a wheelchair because she's like i can't believe they haven't let you go see your baby um or haven't helped you they could not find a wheelchair in the entire hospital (laughs) um but she went and she tracked one down and wheeled me up there and so i remember seeing abigail and hold i actually got to hold her right then (laughs) Um, So 12 hours later, I held her, and I remember this, I think he was a resident, came in, and I was asking him the game plan. He said they're going to have a meeting on Monday. Remember, this was Saturday. They were going to have a meeting on Monday to discuss her case. I said, so since she's doing better, is she, what are we going to do if she starts to decline? And his words were, we have to wait till the meeting on Monday. We're not going to do anything. And what I heard was they're not going to save her now that she's doing so well. Anyway, the nurse um, intervened for the doctor, I think, on his behalf because he wasn't explaining things well. And she said, I promise you, if something happens to your baby where she needs to be resuscitated, we're going to save her. Um, Wow. So anyway, that's not something... um, a doctor should not tell a mom 12 hours out of giving birth that they're not going to save your baby because um, Mama Bear came out. But I, yeah. I think it was like 11 o'clock at night. I finally went downstairs to rest because, I mean, I needed medicine, and the doc- or the nurses were looking for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it was by day 3 or 4, they told us Abigail would have surgery before she left the hospital. So they saw that she was doing much better than they expected. Um, The doctor who diagnosed her actually came in and visited her. She said, yeah, we probably will have to wait for her to grow. She probably won't leave the hospital until at least Christmas um, when she grows and has surgery. So that's what we were expecting. But not two days later, they told us they were going to transfer us to another unit so she could be discharged um, without surgery without, like, any kind of heart cath or anything to fix the heart. Uh, Now, one thing I forgot to mention is in utero, she had that arrhythmia. She -hmm. had the wall-to-wall heart, and she had circular shunting, which meant the blood was going back. When she was born, her pulmonary valve somehow opened, and the blood was able to go through her lungs, so it could oxygenate and go through her body. So the circular shunting, the pulmonary atresia, that went away. Her heart wasn't as big as they said. It was still severely enlarged, but it wasn't as big. Um, So her lungs obviously expanded. Um, And the arrhythmia that she had in utero, and it was so clear to hear, was gone. They have no explanation as to where the arrhythmia went. We have
0: an explanation. (laughs) They don't. Right. Wow.
1: But, yeah, so her heart, and every few days it would get better and better and stronger and they put her on a me- uh, medicine called digoxin, and its job was to help her heart squeeze to help send the blood through. But she was discharged at, right at three weeks, and her first outpatient cardiology visit, her cardiologist took her off, and she wasn't on heart medication.
0: Oh, my gosh. That is absolutely incredible. <laughs> so I know that she's had multiple surgeries. Explain, just for time reasons, what, what is it that she's endured? Kind of walk through those things
1: when she was born her early days we saw a lot of doctors um in the hospital we found out she had a genetic syndrome called say through syndrome which i have um so i gave that to her um which that has a whole bunch of other things um so we saw we were followed by cardiology and the cardiologist we chose him because he was the first cardiologist in the hospital to give us hope um he knew epstein's anomaly yeah and he refused to let us go home with her on a feeding tube, which is a huge deal. Um so he was always so positive and I don't know, we I still love the man. <laughs> we see him I think in February. <laughs>
0: That's awesome.
1: But um anyway, so with Sather Chosen syndrome, that um can cause craniosynostosis, which is uh, the premature fusion of the sutures in her head. Um so we had to see a craniofacial team. So we went to see the craniofacial team, and, and this has
0: nothing to do with her heart. Now this is all to do with her brain and her and skull. Her skull, okay.
1: Mm-hmm. It has to do a lot with bones. This genetic syndrome, okay. the facial structures. Um, so she didn't have craniosynostosis at the point um, at that point, but we were monitoring her, which is why we started going there. Um, they diagnosed her with a cleft palate. A submucous cleft palate, so we had no idea because there's skin covering, like she has the skin of her palate, but the muscles aren't aren't closed. closed. So she, we were given a cleft diagnosis, which was unexpected. Um, She failed her newborn newborn hearing test, so we were followed by audiology and ENT, and she continued to fail hearing tests. She hears okay. Um, She does have hearing loss, but it's in low frequencies, which is um it's not our speaking frequencies. Uh but again I have that same hearing loss and it hasn't affected me. Um so Wow. <laughs>
0: so that's stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff. And yes. so in your when you hear these kind of things, what what is your response in those moments?
1: I mean at that point it was like whatever.
0: <laughs> you are like bring it on.
1: Like, <laughs> she had been through so much that oh, we yeah. were like, I mean it's it meant it sounds bad because I know parents that go through just these things. It's a huge deal for them. Sure, but it's a for me, upheaval I was like of their
0: life. Like,
1: mm-hmm, but you've already
0: like, been through the upheaval.
1: Mm-hmm. I I was born with craniosynostosis, so I went through all those surgeries myself. Abigail getting a cleft diagnosis. I mean, maybe she needed a surgery, but none of these things were life or death. And so, yeah. I think we kind of laughed about it because it seemed for the first year, every time we went to the doctor, she was getting a new diagnosis. Wow. Um, But none of them were, like, super life-altering. We continued to follow the plastic surgeon. And by, I think she was four months old, Abigail was diagnosed with craniosynostosis. But it was super, super mild. And it was just one tiny portion of one of her sutures. So we were just monitoring it.
0: (laughs) Talk me through surgery. So did she end up having heart surgery? Did she end up having the the surgery to fix her crane I know these I'm just asking mm-hmm. you for the audience sake what happened with those things and where is she at now how has her health progressed and what is the outlook
1: mm-hmm. so she started to decline somewhere around July of 2022 she got COVID I don't nobody said COVID did anything to her but in my mind, COVID is what started this process because you can just look at her face before she had COVID. She wasn't swollen. And then two weeks later, she was so swollen and it just got worse. Um, That swelling is edema. It's caused by a bad heart, Um, basically the start of heart failure. So we went to cardiology in August and he told us her heart had gotten worse, that it had grown some more, the leakage which had been classified mild in her early days, um, was now severe again. And yeah. that we would visit in six months and start then discussing surgery. But since I knew that we had this Epstein specialist who already knew her, and I knew how quickly somebody with Epstein's anomaly can deteriorate once they go into heart failure, it's hard for an Epstein's heart to recover from heart failure. So. Often they'd end up with a heart transplant, so I sent her records, and both the doctors said that within three to six months she needed to have her surgery. So
0: where did you send her records to?
1: So we sent her records up to Mayo in Minnesota. Okay. And um, University of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Medical Center up in Pittsburgh. Um, we. We're told by the doctor in Mayo that she would need a Glenn procedure, which is it reroutes the blood and would put her some restrictions on her in her future, um, as well as her cone, which is them repairing the tricuspid valve. The other doctor said they could fix the tricuspid valve. They weren't saying she wouldn't need the Glenn procedure because of how severe it was, but they would do the cone first. And if it didn't hold up, they would do a Glenn to help. Um, And that basically just took the pressure off the newly formed tricuspid valve. Got it. Um, So we decided on going to Pittsburgh because that is the surgeon who created the cone procedure 30 years ago. That's a smart idea. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Like, that's
0: so amazing to me. Like, okay, God moment. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) We were scheduled to go to Pittsburgh the end of October. But at the beginning of October, we revisited the cranial facial clinic and we were sent for another CT scan and her surgeon called me on a Sunday morning. Why is she there I'm looking at her records on Sunday morning? But she called and was she called me several times in a row because it was early Sunday morning. I'm like I don't want to talk to anybody. And I answered and she said Abigail needs surgery on her head. It's like, okay, we're supposed to leave for Pittsburgh next week. And so she was explaining all of like the diagnosis of her craniosynostosis, instead of her having just that tiny part of her skull fused, now the whole coronal suture was fused, so both sides were fused. Um, oh, wow. And so we had that to deal with. We told the amazing nurse coordinator at um, in Pittsburgh about this, and so she scheduled us with their craniofacial team and their neurosurgeons and had them, when we were there, check on her Before her heart surgery, because in the medical field, it's head before heart. And so if her brain was going to be suffering, they would fix that first. Wow. Um, Thankfully, although I don't know if it was that thankfully, again, looking at it, it could be God's hand. Because I don't think they saw her records, the newest CT scan, because they said it was only one side and that they didn't think it needed surgery ever. So I think because it was like less than a week out from her first CT scan, I think, or from the most recent CT scan, I don't think they had those images. And had Hmm. they had those images, I think they-
0: Would not have proceeded with the heart.
1: Or it would have been a different story, I don't know. Um, We probably would have ended up, because we talked about if she needed head surgery, she would have head surgery in Pittsburgh. We'd stay in Pittsburgh until she recovered and was ready for heart surgery. It was gonna be a big ordeal. Um, But anyway, they said, nope, it's fine. They did their test to make sure she had no intracranial pressure, and so they didn't see any signs of that, which is a positive. So we went ahead with heart surgery. Um, And the heart surgery, was amazing. Her repair was perfect. They told us she'd be out of the hospital in maybe 7 to 10 days. She was out 5 days. Oh
0: my gosh. (laughs) My mind is blown.
1: And while she was in the hospital after surgery, she did have some issues with being swollen in her head. Um, the thing with heart surgery is it, depending on the anatomy, it can change the pressures and the blood pressure in your body Mm -hmm. and increased blood pressure can increase the intracranial pressure.
0: So,
1: um, there was concern for that, but again, they did scans and it was okay. She was swollen for a little bit, but everything worked out there and we came home and I mean, she's done well with her heart since.
0: (laughs) So she's not had any more heart surgery since then Mm -hmm. and everything is okay. Yes. And then tell me then again, so if they thought it was slight, but it was more than what they were expecting with her cranium, what, what happens next? Like, how did you end up having to do the next step?
1: Yeah. So we followed up with cardiology and asked him, Hey, this doctor told us she needs to have her head surgery. When can we do this? He said she needs to wait six months after her heart surgery, and then we can talk about it. So... We told the plastic surgeon, she said, that's fine, we'll keep monitoring her. And so that's what we did. Um, so she had heart surgery in October, so we had to wait until May. She was almost two at this point. Her soft spot still hadn't closed, the one in the front yeah. of her head, which it should have closed by 18 months. And it, they just decided that it was because her head was trying to allow room for her brain to continue to grow. Yeah her last ct scan before surgery showed her brain starting to go through that oh, soft spot just to i mean it was trying to get find all the room it possibly could yeah um so did that freak you out oh yeah
0: i would like at this point like
1: i would Scott the had scotomy
0: me, would panic
1: <laughs> <laughs> if they told me that they would they needed to do surgery that day i would say okay great but i trusted the doctor and the fact that she was confident in us being i mean at this point it was two more weeks maybe
0: yeah um, and it's gonna go you're gonna go back to pittsburgh
1: no with those so, doctors
0: or this is going to shans yes so okay. we
1: did we did heart in pittsburgh and we talked about doing the head surgery in pittsburgh because then she'd be close to her heart surgeon but shans has a really great heart center and we knew that post-op she would be in the heart icu okay so cardiologist would be on her care got it um And the plastic surgeon in Shands is amazing and very highly reviewed.
0: Now it's two weeks out, and so you end up going and just having the regular scheduled, do they call it brain surgery? Do they call it cranium? What do they call it?
1: That's a great question, (laughs) because the surgery that I had when I was born was considered brain surgery. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's considered brain surgery anymore. Although they needed a neurosurgeon. I
0: was going to say, is that a neurosurgeon operating?
1: So it's the neurosurgeon and the plastic surgeon working together. Wow. The neurosurgeon has to be there to help cut the bone to make sure there's no damage to the dura. Mm -hmm. Um, and then if there was, they'd repair that. Um, they just, they're there to help make sure the brain is okay. Um,
0: so what did this surgery entail? What does it look like afterwards? Because I remember seeing her little pins, and you showed me underneath her hat. Mm-hmm. Like, what? So how's that? And tell us what you had to do as a parent with the apparatus stuff that they have inserted into your kid's head, which just <laughs> blows my mind. Like,
1: yeah. first
0: of all, I can't believe modern medicine, that mm-hmm. they can do all the things that they can do. Mm-hmm. But this is incredible. Like,
1: Yeah. It's really freaky. <laughs> so... <laughs> Our, we had a couple of surgical options and both came with risks and, but one was safer than the other. And we of course chose a safer option, um, but it meant a lot more work for us. So they cut the suture line open and they cut around the back of her skull because what we would do is expand her skull over the course of 30 days. Um, they, the surgeon said when they made that final cut in her bone, there was a pop as the pressure released, and they oh watched her brain settle. So, oh my god, <laughs> I'm just I'm gonna pass out real sorry. fast. Sorry, in a second. Your okay, discussion. we're good. Um, <laughs> oh my god, so they put a trigger warning. Um, <laughs> oh,
0: so wild,
1: but they inserted these pins, and they called them distractors. They're little arms that stick mm-hmm. out the front of her head. We called them her antenna. Oh. Um, her surgeon said they were really cute. We were having a hard time <laughs> finding the cuteness in them. Looking back, they're super cute, but (laughs) when we first saw them, not so much. Um, So since they were hardware sticking out of her body, we had to make sure that she was not um, developing infections, and an infection that close to the skull goes to the brain. It can go to her not perfect heart. Um, We never, thankfully, had many issues with that. We did have one instance of infection, but... We had to learn in the hospital how to turn the distractors. So three times a day, we take this little screwdriver that would attach to it, and we turn it one rotation, three times a day, and it would expand her skull.
0: skull. Wow! Um, Now, does this hurt her?
1: I don't think so. I don't know. I the only thing I had to compare it to was when I had a palate expander in middle school, and my mom would turn the key, and I felt the pressure. And it would be sore, but it wasn't, like, terrible. Got it. Um, but I can't relate to having my whole skull oh my <laughs> expanded. Gosh. But she it always... I was <laughs> just like,
0: <laughs> like, that's crazy to me.
1: Yeah. She was always fine, though. But, again, she's, like, the toughest kid I know. shes I don't know how many times she's ended up with a bloody nose and hasn't cried over it. Um, but, anyway, so I remember day two... It wasn't even that. It was like the second time they came to turn, I asked them, Can I please turn it? And they said I have never had a parent that quickly ask if they can start turning. And I was like, Well, I know if I learn it, and the faster I learn it, the faster we can get out of this hospital. Yeah, no joke. Um
0: hospital stays are
1: Yeah, especially No there, rest, I miserable see <laughs>
0: Yeah, they don't let you sleep. They don't Mm -hmm. let you do anything. They just are constantly checking on you. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And
0: there's no rhythm to life. It's just chaos.
1: Yes. Yeah. She did have issues. I believe it was this day with um, getting confused with night and day, but it wasn't terrible. But anyway, every day for 30 days, we cleaned the distractors two times a day and then turned them three times a day. Anyway, so... We would go to Shans every week, and they'd do an X-ray, and we'd see her skull get wider and wider. The little strip that they had cut, it would just get wider and wider. And by I think so was it was this late.
0: just covered with flesh, like there's like literally a gap in her bone, and you're waiting for the bone to like fuse and go back together.
1: Yes. Oh my god. Um. So, in a normal human, the suture of hers that fused mm-hmm. doesn't fuse officially until like the age of twenty-five. Okay. So, the bone would grow back, but the sutures are not supposed to fuse. The difference, I don't know. <laughs> I that's don't know how they can tell. Wow. Um, Now, because of her genetic syndrome, she's always at a risk for developing craniosynostosis. Um, but we don't anticipate it. So, you can, I don't know, I haven't felt in a while, but you could feel all around her skull and it felt like when babies have their soft spots, yeah. that's what it felt like all the way around. Wow, okay. So, anyway... Yeah, after 30 days, they took the arms of her distractors off. They had She had little teeny tiny things sticking out. Um, and then from June was when we had that removed, almost July, until September, the day after her second birthday. <laughs> um, she
0: yeah. had the
1: distractors, and then she had her surgery to have them removed. And, I mean, she had surgery on the 12th, She was supposed to go to ICU, but they said she did amazing, so they just put her on the regular unit. And by that next morning, I mean, it was like 7 o'clock in the morning, they asked me, do you want to go home? And I said, yes, please. So, I mean, it was less than 24 hours after having the surgery. She went home. You wouldn't know this child had been through anything. Both of her scars, her chest, the one on her chest, you can't see it. And the one in her hair, I mean, it's... Unless you know it's there, it just looks like a fancy partner here at the time. Um,
0: <laughs> Mama got good braiding skills. <laughs> I know.
1: But, I mean, she's she's doing amazing, and she's she is the funniest thing, and she gets so much joy. Like, her face lights up if she's making other people laugh, and I don't know. I think that kind of speaks volumes to Abigail. And, I mean, I knew that there was something big about her life, and that's another thing I promised God if he gave me Abigail that... I would make sure that everybody knew her story, but everybody knew his attachment to her story. Hmm.
0: So what would you say the biggest lesson that you've learned from this?
1: That you can't expect anything. That you can have your expectations and have your mind set up on what you want, but you don't have control over it, full control over it. And there are some things that are just too big for you. And I learned how to let everything go to give it all up. And I mean, I do that in just the teeniest things now that my kids are driving me crazy. God, I need to get through this day. I don't know how I'm about to lose it. <laughs> Please help me. And sometimes he shows me grace. <laughs> but most but of the time. But aren't you glad
0: that your kids are there to be able to drive you crazy? Yes. Like even in those moments, like when I would get frustrated at Addie for... Well, being Addie and Minnie, me, because um, <laughs> she is literally my clone, I just would still be like, I'm so grateful that you're here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm so grateful that you're here because every day we're not, we're not, anyone's not promised tomorrow. But yeah. like when your kid and my kid went through nothing compared to what your child has gone through, that's but like so you funny. just see everything in a different lens. Mm-hmm. So that's so exciting and I'm so happy and I'm so grateful for those moments. Cause I remember us laying hands on you in the altar and praying over you and praying for Abigail. And just knowing that like the whole time, like I prayed over you, like I've never had like such a total sense of peace that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that scares me to say anything like that. Like, can you imagine telling a pregnant mom, right? Who's mm-hmm. facing this, who's heard all this, that the Lord's got your baby in his grip mm-hmm. and it's going to be okay. Like, i remember saying something like that to you and i thought oh dear god what have i said in the back of my mind but i was like it was it was the urgency of the holy spirit to let you know Mm -hmm. that his hand is on her and man what an amazing and powerful story and thank you for sharing this with us her story has only just begun like i cannot wait to see like both your children grow up in the Lord and in his house but like man I can't wait to see what comes out of her life like when the Lord says in Jeremiah 29 11 that he has plans for us and there's a hope in a future man I, that's all over your kid I can't wait to see the next phase in the story because what is ahead is greater than all the valleys because now man, you get to climb the mountain and I can't wait to hear the story of what it's like when you're at the top All right, thanks for being with us today on the GenesisChurch.tv podcast. I'm Scott Hunter, and this has been Heather George, and we are just so grateful to have spent this time with you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk with you again soon next week. Bye. This has been another podcast of GenesisChurch.tv with Scott Hunter, lead pastor of Genesis Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Visit us in person at 4070 Mission Road here in Tallahassee. Catch us for weekly messages and midweek interviews and encouragement here on the GenesisChurch.tv podcast.